0: church. Happy Independence Day to you. We are going to continue our journey through the minor prophets. Today we come to the prophet Obadiah. And uh, how many of you would have come to church today if you knew we were talking about? Oh, okay, good, good. Uh, Obadiah is the shortest of the minor prophets, 21 verses. But uh, the minor prophets are not minor because they're less important. They're minor because they're shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So God wants to teach us some major lessons today from a minor prophet named Obadiah. So if you look at your handout and you look at the top, um, what is Obadiah's main message? Well, Obadiah's message is that God often brings his judgment to bring about a great reversal, that those who are high and mighty and arrogant and oppressive will get their just due, they'll be brought low, and those who are oppressed and persecuted, who are God's people, will be lifted up. So just a little bit of historical background, as we begin, Uh, this is a book about two brothers, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers who were at odds from the womb, (laughs) they were fighting each other. And so Jacob and Esau were the father Of two nations Jacob of course the nation of Israel and Esau was the father of the Edomite people in the Old Testament we have two kingdoms involved here kingdom of Israel God's chosen people and the kingdom of Edom and what happened was there was rivalry there was conflict between these two kingdoms and eventually under King David the Edomites were defeated they were brought into submission and subjection to Israel But then over time, the nation of Israel uh, fell away from God, drifted away from God, drifted into idolatry and uh, unbelief and rebellion against God, and God brought devastating judgment through the Babylonian army, and they came in, and the the southern kingdom was wiped out, and the temple was destroyed, and there was rape and pillage and plunder, and the nation of Edom rather than coming to Israel's defense, joined in the slaughter and turned on their brother nation. And as a result of that, God raised up Obadiah to announce this, this blistering judgment that was going to come upon Edom and the restoration, the future restoration of God's people Israel. So let's take a minute and watch the Bible Project and uh, the overview of this book from the Bible Project.
1: The Book of the Prophet Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the dead. See, however, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham who, with Sarah, had their son Isaac, who, with his wife Rebekah, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelite cities and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. Now in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. The short book has two halves. The first part is a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom, specifically for their pride and self-exaltation literally, as they lived up high in the desert rocks, but also metaphorically. They truly believed they were superior to the Israelites. And it's that pride that led the Edomites to not just stand idly by when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem, but actually to participate in the destruction. And so God says through Obadiah that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As they have done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now, right when you think you're going to hear more about how Edom will meet its doom, the topic suddenly shifts in verse 15. We hear this. The day of the Lord is near against all nations. Now, why do we all of a sudden shift from Edom now to all nations? This first is a hinge piece, and it links the first half of the book to the second half, where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord, but not only for Edom. He widens his focus to include all nations. And Obadiah says that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way. They'll fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Now, the combination of these two sections, one about Edom, the other about all nations, shows us why Obadiah was so interested in this tiny southern neighbor of Israel. Obadiah sees Edom's pride and fall as an example, an image of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall too. It's hardly coincidental that in Hebrew, the word Edom or Edom is spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. In Obadiah, Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord.
0: So what are some of the major lessons from this minor prophet? Uh, Actually, the things that Obadiah focuses on are, are relevant to our daily lives today. So number one, if you have your outline, God goes after in edom their the major sin their foundational sin the sin behind all their other sins and that is the sin of pride there's something about pride that is odious it's offensive to god it comes in for for major judgment in the bible i like what jason meyer pastor in in minnesota he says god hates pride What makes pride so singularly repulsive to God is the way that pride contends for supremacy with God himself. In other words, pride leads us to be our own gods, to push God off the throne, to turn our backs on God, to ignore God, and install ourselves in his place. Other sins lead the sinner further away from God, but pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God himself. And that's what the the Edomites were doing. We see in these first couple of verses, verses one through four, some of the sources of Edom's pride. Why were they so haughty? Well, one thing was their unique geography. They were southeast of the Dead Sea. It was very rocky, mountainous area. And they were able to build military defenses and fortresses up in those mountain cliff areas, with narrow uh, openings and passes that would lead up. They felt like no, no invading army could ever defeat us here. Second thing is uh, they had a strong network of political and military alliances. They were friends with other big co- countries that agreed to come to their defense if they were ever attacked. They had their own wise men, counselors, advisors to the king And they had a powerful army and powerful weapons. And so that gave them a a sense of arrogance, a false sense of superiority. We don't need God, we don't need anybody, because uh, we are the, the strongest country in the world. So it was pride that led to all their other sins and all their downfall. And if you look at verse three, something destructive about pride it talks about how the pride of your heart has deceived you. There's something blind, blinding about pride. It blinds us to reality. It, it blinds us to our own weakness. It blinds us to our need from God. That's why Jeremiah 17:9 is such an important verse. The, the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Um. I read a particularly horrible example of this in one of John Ortberg's books. It was a Civil War history, and it was talking about a southern plantation owner who professed to be a Christian, and I'll let him tell the story. plantation owner named James Hammond. and he served as both a congressman and a governor. Besides being insatiably ambitious and an ardent defender of slavery, Hammond also indulged a voracious sexual appetite. In 1813, 1839, he purchased an 18 year old slave named Sally and her infant daughter Louisa. He made Sally his concubine and fathered several children by her. Then, when Louisa reached the age of 12, he installed her in her mother's old role and fathered several more children. He also sexually abused his brother-in-law's four daughters. And eventually, uh, his wife left him, and then epidemics took the lives of many of his slaves and many of his livestock. What's amazing is what this man wrote in his diary at the time. His words, it crushes me to the earth to see everything of mine so blasted around me, Slaves, cattle, mules, hogs, everything that has life around me seems to labor under some faded curse. Great God, he says. What have I done to deserve this? What have I done? What have I done or omitted to do to deserve this fate? Well, I can think of a couple things that they had done, right? This is self-deception on steroids. But lest we get very proud and think, well, that would never happen to me, that this danger lurks in every one of our hearts. S- there's something about sin and there's something about pride that has a blinding effect upon us. Aren't you glad we have the Word of God which is living and active and sharp and able to open our eyes, pierce through the deception, pierce through the fantasy, and the Word of God is able to penetrate to our minds and hearts and open our eyes to reality. Are you in the Word on a regular basis? We need to be, it's a safeguard. And so, second thing there in your outline, because of Edom's pride and their self-deception, God goes after them for what pride has led to. The fact is pride is a mother sin that gives birth to many other sins. Pride is a root, a root sin from which other sins grow and that's what God goes after in verses 10 through 14. And in verses 10 and 11, God gets to the point of, of the worst sin that the edomites committed verse 10 and 11 because of the violence against your brother jacob your brother nation jacob you will be covered with shame you will be destroyed forever on the day you stood aloof when strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for jerusalem you were like one of them He's talking about the Babylonian invade. the bloodthirsty Babylonian army came to Jerusalem and destroyed the city, burnt the temple. Those that survived the slaughter were deported back up into Babylon for a 70-year Babylonian captivity. And what did Edom do? They didn't just stand aloof and ignore what was going on. They actively joined in against the Israelites And God said, your pride has led you to this kind of violence and viciousness. And that's why God announced this judgment upon the nation of Edom. There's something particularly destructive about pride. And one of the big things is pride gives birth to a host of other sins. And this is why there are such strong warnings in the Bible. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. God is actively against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The horrible thing about pride is pride seals us off from God's blessing. Pride chokes off God's blessing from our life. It's like standing on the hose. It's a thoroughly self-defeating strategy. And so if we allow ourselves to become proud and function independently of God and don't trust in Him with all of our hearts and seek Him in prayer every day, that robs us of God's healing, blessing, transforming influence. And it leaves us at the mercy of our sinful flesh, our sinful desires, our destructive desires. Pride is like the scuba diver turning off the flow of oxygen. He is going to slowly die. He's going to slowly rot from within. This is why I love Proverbs chapter 3, 7. A lot of us know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 7 is just as good. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Don't let yourself become proud. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will bring healing to your flesh. And refreshing to your bones when you come proud when you allow yourself to become proud you cut off God's blessing and you slowly rot and wither away from within this is why Galatians 6 8 is in the Bible the one who sows to the flesh who kind of drifts away from God and sows to the flesh from the flesh he will reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit, who relies on the Spirit, who seeks to, to rely on and obey the promptings of the Spirit, he will reap life, abundant life, eternal life. Are you cultivating a daily reliance upon the Holy Spirit? Are you cultivating a daily openness and, and surrender to his leading in your life? That will lead to blessing. That will lead to healing. That will lead to prophetic. Uh, to refreshing. And then thirdly, God gets real serious here and he announces this withering catastrophic judgment that is gonna come upon Edom for their haughtiness, for their autonomy from God, for their violence against Israel. And God announces a great reversal that's gonna eventually take place. And this is a theme in the whole Bible and that is, in this life, those who are arrogant, those who are wealthy, those who are powerful, often use their position to oppress those who are underneath them. Uh, the justice somebody, I heard somebody say years ago, the color of justice is green, right? Those who are wealthy and powerful have a way of subverting the justice system. And the theme of the Bible is those who are high and haughty and sinful and oppressive and violent, they're going to be brought down. They're not going to get away with it. Their sin is not going to have the last word. And God's people, those who are often poor, God's people among the minorities and the poor who are so oppressed and and so mistreated, they're going to be lifted up and they're going to be blessed and they're going to be rewarded for all eternity. So... So, there is a great reversal coming, and God announces it here through Obadiah. And the Bible tells us that this coming judgment is cause for rejoicing and celebration. Psalm 98, verse 8 and 9, Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy, let them sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. Now, I don't know about you, but for a long, long time, I thought God's coming judgment doesn't sound like good news to me because I I know I deserve it. I'm sinful. And that's true. God has provided forgiveness so that we escape his judgment. But I think people who live, especially in the two-thirds world where there is so much systematic oppression, and corruption, I think they they more easily see how God is going to set the record straight. God is going to do justice to the evildoers. I I think they see that more clearly. N.T. Wright, Bible scholar, talking about this theme of rejoicing at God's coming judgment. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing. It's something to be celebrated, something to be longed for, something to be anticipated. It causes people to shout for joy and even the trees of the field to clap their hands. And then he says this, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, sex trafficking, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place, and the poor and weak are given their due, is the best news that there can be. A couple years ago, I read about a, a Christian leader who travels and speaks in the, in the two-thirds world. He was in India, and he was going to speak on the Old Testament in this conference. And an Indian man came up to him. This Indian man was teaching chemistry in a university, and he, he, he told Christopher Wright, he says, when I found out you were going to preach on the Old Testament, he said, I was really glad, because he says, I got saved through reading the Old Testament. And then he, he told Wright this story. He said, I grew up in one of the uh, despised minorities here in India, talking about the caste system. And he said, I grew up experiencing injustice and seeing people around me brutalized. I saw how unfair uh, we, we were treated, how unfairly we were treated. And he said, that made, made me angry. And he says, I was a good student, and my goal became, I want to I get a good education, and I want to get a good job, and I want to do what I can do to bring some justice and a measure of revenge. He was a Marxist. He thought communism was the answer. And he said, my first year in college, I received a Bible from a group of Christians on the campus. He said, I never read the Bible, so I started to read it. But he said, I started in the Old Testament. And he said, the very first story in the Bible I came to was the story of Naboth in First or Second Kings when Ahab and Jezebel were king and queen. You know, there's a reason Christian families don't name their daughters Jezebel or Ahab. Because these guys were were so evil and unjust and oppressive. And Naboth was a a godly, God-fearing Israelite who owned a vineyard right outside the palace. And Ahab and Jezebel decided to have Naboth murdered in cold blood so that they could seize his property. First story this guy read. And he read this book. And he said, I never knew that God cared about justice. This was a God I like. This is a God I find attractive. He, he, he doesn't let the guilty go free. And he read the whole Old Testament, and then he came to the New Testament. And he became a, a devout Christian, and now he's part of the solution to the problem of injustice and oppression toward minorities, toward women, toward the poor. The Bible God, the Bible's God, is a God who is just, who cares about justice. Now, thank God he's patient. He's long-suffering. He's giving people time to repent. But but the day of grace is going to end, and God's catastrophic judgment is going to be poured out because we have a God who is not indifferent to sin, and that's the message of Obadiah. Do not mistake God's patience with his indifference towards sin. God is angered by sin, and God is going to do something about it. He is going to bring justice one day. Now, we live in a, a day and age in a, in a secular society where the thought of justice and judgment and hell is profoundly offensive to people around us. But think about it. Would God be good? Would he be worthy of worship if he was indifferent to injustice? Not at all. In fact, J.I. Packer puts it this way. He said the Bible writers did not find a moral problem in catastrophic retribution, like many secularists in our society do. No, the Bible writers did not find a moral problem with hell. They see such retribution as solving the moral problem that God, that evil is allowed to run loose in God's world. So the thought of hell, the thought of God's judgment, doesn't raise all kinds of moral problems. It solves the problem of evil being allowed to run loose in God's good world. No, justice will one day be done. Judgment will be meted out. Sin and evil will not be allowed to thrive unchecked and unpunished forever. No, God is going to bring judgment. God is going to bring catastrophic judgment. Now, the good news is in his wrath, God remembers mercy. And he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world but I came to save the world. Why? Because when Jesus took our place on Calvary, when Jesus died on the cross, the burning, fiery, catastrophic judgment of God fell upon him in our place, and he was consumed on Calvary by the fire of God's wrath. And then God raised him from the dead, and today Jesus offers his mercy. He longs to be merciful to us. And that's why it's so important for us to take refuge in Jesus, to come to Jesus, to hide in Jesus. He becomes our hiding place. He becomes our safe place so that when the fire of final judgment falls, we will be shielded, we will be sheltered, we will be kept safe by Jesus. That's how the Bible describes conversion in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. You turn to God from idols... To serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, that is Jesus, whom he raised from the dead and who rescues us from the coming wrath. We take refuge in Jesus, we hide, he becomes our hiding place. And Colossians says, We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, that safe place, so that when the, the final judgment of God falls, we will be rescued we will be protected, we will be saved and brought safely into God's heavenly kingdom. And that's the last thing that Obadiah announces. Yes, catastrophic judgment is coming upon the proud, the violent, the evil, the unrepentant. But God is also going to raise up and bless and reward for all eternity his people, those who have come to him in repentance and in faith. And yes, they they may be persecuted. They may be mistreated. They may be victims of oppression and injustice in this life, but God is not indifferent to that, and the day is coming when God will set the world right, when justice will be done. That makes our God so infinitely worthy of praise and worship because he does punish the guilty but he also has mercy on those who will receive it from him because Jesus took that wrath in our place. So among all the people on planet Earth today, we have the most reason for hope and we have the most reason to share this good news with the rest of the world. Heard Alistair Begg tell a story a little while ago about Lord Wright, John Wright was a, uh, a British man who became one of the founders of the BBC back in the 1920s. And he became the general director, served for decades in leadership at the BBC. And during the 1960s, the sexual revolution swept through the West, including England, and the, the number of church attenders began to go down. And a young producer got up in a meeting and said, people are really no longer interested in religion so we we should stop all of our religious programming at the BBC Lord Wright was an elderly man got up told the young man to sit down and he said young man the church will preside over the the funeral of the BBC the church will preside over the funeral of the BBC the church is the one thing that is gonna survive the judgment, and that's gonna go into eternity blessed and favored by God. And so the good news is always relevant. The news that God is a God of justice, that judgment will come, that the tables are gonna be turned, the guilty will be punished, and those who have taken refuge in Jesus are gonna be lifted up forever. So my question to you is, have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you come to him for salvation? Have you humbled yourself before him? And if you've never done that, I invite you to do that when the service ends. There'll be a prayer team up here. and After we're done, I invite you to come up and somebody here at the front can help you begin a relationship with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you today that the Bible is good news. Even the news of your judgment, your coming judgment, is good news. You will not let evil have the last word. Lord, justice will be done. The guilty will be punished. And Lord, those who have been oppressed, put down, mistreated, persecuted, Lord, those who know you, Lord, you'll make up for that in amazing ways by an eternity of comfort and joy, and peace, and happiness. Lord, you are a good God, an infinitely good God, and so help us to love you, and help us to, to spread this message of good news, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.